Hi, welcome to the Written by Rich Hosick podcast. This week, it's another mystery featuring my favorite investigative duo, Black and White. For those of you who aren't familiar with them, Isaac Black is a former police detective who lost his sight, and Jeremy White is his assistant and nurse. Isaac is called upon to help find an invaluable jade carving, and even though he's blind, he manages to see what others do not. Enjoy. The Jade Dragon Why is it called a drawing room? Jeremy White asked, as he and his companion entered the wood-paneled room, richly appointed with antique furniture, portraits with gilded frames, and an enormous oriental rug. It doesn't look like anyone does any drawing in here. It's derived from the term withdrawing room, a place people withdrew to when they wanted to be alone, Isaac Black explained, as he adjusted the dark glasses that obscured his sightless eyes. These days, a drawing room is generally used to entertain guests. The question was rhetorical, Isaac. There's no one here yet to be impressed, Jeremy told him. Save the trivia. I've already heard it all. We didn't know why it was called a drawing room, Isaac pointed out. As the rest of the people from the dinner party filed in, Jeremy described the room to Isaac in a low voice. Isaac's hearing was especially acute, and he took in the information his assistant gave him and built a mental map of the room in his mind. He could also hear the others enter the room engaged in conversations carried over from the dinner table. Once Jeremy had finished giving him the lay of the land, he walked across the room, stopped in front of a cushion-covered sofa, turned around and sat down, adjusting the cushions behind him. The performance had the desired effect. A few of the people in the room muttered, Did you see that? And I thought he was blind. Isaac tried to pick out the sound of his host's voice, David Sorrell. He was the reason Isaac had been invited to this rather exclusive dinner party, by way of another one of the guests, Lydia Rosenblum. She was the president of the Amaranth Foundation for the Deaf and Blind, an organization that provided rehabilitative services for the newly disabled. The organization, and specifically Lydia, had literally saved Isaac's life. He had been a detective with the Chicago Police Department when he was shot in the head pursuing a suspect. Miraculously, he had survived but the injury to his brain left him totally blind. He was in the throes of depression and seriously considering suicide when Lydia got word of his situation and made available to him all the services required to teach him to live a fulfilling and independent life, including introducing him to Jeremy White, who was initially employed as his nurse but now functioned more as Isaac's assistant. To repay her kindness, Isaac began helping Lydia out with her little mysteries, as she called them. Certain problems that she and her staff certain donors and beneficiaries of the foundation had, which could be solved by Isaac's particular talents. During his career with the CPD, he had been the detective with the highest clearance rate, and even though he could no longer see, his mind was still as keen as ever. Isaac even asserted that his ability to discern clues that other people overlooked was heightened without the distraction of sight. David Sorrell was one of the top benefactors to the Amaranth Foundation. But it didn't matter who it was Lydia asked him to help. Isaac was forever in her debt, and thus always at her disposal. She had given him the short version of the problem her donor needed help with, a missing statuette of some sort, that was causing quite a rift in the Sorrel household. Isaac had picked up part of the story during dinner, and even more of the context concerning the relationships between the members of the family. Any sighted person would likely have been able to see the disdain people held for others by the look on their face, but Isaac found he was able to discern even more by the tone in their voices, and especially who talked to whom and who didn't. 
During the dinner, he had answered a few polite questions addressed to him, but for the most part he listened, and by the time dessert was served, he had a pretty good idea of the dynamics at play, and in his experience, that was usually where the answers lay. At the end of the meal, Isaac rose to his feet and clinked his wine glass with the edge of his knife. It had the desired effect. The conversations around him abruptly ended, and everyone shifted their attention to him. Mr. Sorrel, I want to thank you for your kind invitation and the wonderful meal. You're quite welcome, David replied. I was wondering if this would be a good time for me to help you with the situation Lydia has brought to my attention. Might I suggest we adjourn ourselves to your drawing room? Isaac didn't wait for an answer. He stepped away from the table, held out his left hand. Jeremy got up and stepped in front of Isaac, positioning his elbow to guide him. Um, yes, I think that would be fine, David replied. Which way? Jeremy asked. Their host nodded toward a short hallway, and Jeremy began leading Isaac in that direction. It wasn't until they were almost out of sight that the other guests started rising from the table to join them. And now there were a dozen people crowded into the modestly sized drawing room, most of them forced to stand. Isaac was alone on the sofa, with only the cushions for company. He turned his gaze, obscured by dark lenses, in the direction of the desk that Jeremy had indicated was to his left, hoping that his assumption that David Sorrel would sit behind it was correct. It was. I understand something is missing, Isaac said. Sorrel nodded, then realized he was answering a blind man and said, Yes, it's a jade statue of a dragon. About four inches tall, Isaac told him. Precisely, Sorrel said, surprised. And the last place you saw it? Right here on my desk, he said, pointing, then added, On the far right corner. Isaac nodded. Sorrel went on. While I was having a conversation with my brother, he added disdainfully, About money, of course. The last statement was obviously a dig, as evidenced by the grunt that came from Sorrel's sibling, Peter. Isaac ignored the family drama for now. And when did you notice it was missing? David Sorrel had to think about that one for a moment. It wasn't until the next day, I guess, he admitted. Is this jade dragon valuable? Isaac asked. It's priceless, Sorrel stated. It was a gift to my great-grandfather from the Emperor of China. I can understand why you're so upset by its disappearance, Isaac said. He turned to face the direction the indignant grunt from Peter Sorrel had come from earlier. How long have you been living here with your brother? Peter shifted uncomfortably. I came to stay in the family home a month ago. I'm currently making changes in my career and thought it would be a good idea for the children to spend some time with their aunt and uncle, he said. The freeloader lost his job, David translated. The conversation shifted to a well-rehearsed argument between the brothers, with Peter enumerating the generous offers he was considering from various financial firms, while David listed all the failed investments that had left Peter in need of his brother's largesse. Isaac let the conversation play out as he reached out with his left hand and squeezed one of the cushions he was sharing the sofa with pulling gently on the silk fringe along its edge. The squabble between the Sorrel brothers quickly faded to silence. Isaac cocked his head in different directions, trying to determine what had happened to end the quarrel. Isaac, the cushion, Jeremy said to him softly. Hmm? he asked. Isaac actually knew exactly what Jeremy was talking about. He had heard Meredith Sorrel, David's wife, bragging to Lydia about her collection of antique cushions in the drawing room and he wanted to see if his careless handling of them, let alone his presence on the sofa, which was essentially just an exhibit for them, would dominate any other conversations in the room, no matter how intense. It did. Isaac let go of the fringe, gave the cushion a pat, and put his hands in his lap, smiling apologetically. I'm sorry, Mr. Black, Meredith Sorrel said sheepishly, 
It's just that those cushions are very old. No one usually sits on that sofa. Isaac leaned forward to stand. No, please, Meredith continued. It's all right. Just do be careful. Isaac nodded his understanding and settled back down on the sofa, careful not to scrunch the cushions too much. Auntie, Auntie, came a cry from the doorway, accompanied by the patter of children's feet. Two children wearing pajamas rushed into the drawing room, a boy and a girl, who looked to be very close in age. Cassie hit me, the boy said. Did not, Cassie replied. Children, you're supposed to be in bed, Peter Sorrell said. Then to the rest of the guests, he added, My apologies, they think they're on holiday. I'm afraid I've been quite indulgent since their mother passed. Meredith bent down to talk to the children. You know you're not supposed to be in here. Go back to your rooms and maybe I'll read you a story when we're done here. Okay, Auntie, Cassie said, the accusations between she and her brother seeming to have been forgotten. They left the room, scampering away just as quickly as they had arrived. Once they were gone, Meredith addressed the room. It's so nice having children in the house. Many of the guests offered statements of agreement. David grumbled from behind his desk. Mrs. Sorrell, Isaac said. Why did you hire a new maid this week? Meredith raised a hand to her mouth in surprise. How on earth did you know that? She just started on Tuesday. Did you tell him, Lydia? She asked her guest. How could I have known? Lydia asked back. Jeremy sighed. This was the part where Isaac got to show off, listing the tiny observations he made during the course of the evening that led to the conclusion that Meredith Sorrell had hired a new maid. It was something Jeremy had seen a hundred times before, so he was quite immune to being impressed by it. You had to correct her several times during the dinner service. She obviously doesn't know all of your preferences yet, like an experienced maid would. From what little I heard her speak, she accidentally used the wrong name. I assume she was still used to addressing her former employer. And when you greeted your guests at the beginning of the evening, you apologized to several of them that you couldn't find a photo of your recent vacation that you wanted to show them. I'm guessing she might have placed it in an unfamiliar location after dusting. That is remarkable, one of the other women said. I told you he was special, Lydia Rosenblum added proudly. I assume your last maid had to leave suddenly because of an illness in her family. All right, how did you know that? David asked. I know for a fact we haven't told anyone why Alice had to leave. Her mother is undergoing chemotherapy and she decided she needed to go take care of her. Because the only suspect you have for the disappearance of your statue is your brother. If it had been the recently replaced maid, I wouldn't be here. So it must have been a personal matter of grave circumstance that called her away, Isaac answered. In other words, he guessed, Jeremy said. Quite an outstanding guess, a man leaning against the far wall, nursing a glass of whiskey, said. I assume you conducted a thorough search of the house, Isaac said, returning the conversation to the subject at hand. Yes, indeed. We've been over every inch of this house, David said, exhausted at just the idea of it. Alice looked everywhere before she left, and Irene did the same since she's arrived. Fresh set of eyes, you know. He looked over at Peter. I haven't been allowed to search my brother's rooms, though. I searched them, Peter answered. Yes, so you say. Is one of those supposed job offers you have guarding a hen house? Careful with your slander, brother. I did not steal the statue, although I don't remember Father leaving it explicitly to you in his will. Father wouldn't have trusted you with his used socks, David declared. David, Peter, Meredith said. Her words immediately silenced them as effectively as Isaac's transgression of fondling the cushions had earlier. I believe you, Mr. Sorrel, Isaac said, directing his sightless gaze at Peter. You did not steal the jade dragon. How can you possibly know that? David asked. You've been here all of two hours. You don't know him the way I do. Because, Isaac said simply, 
I know exactly where it is. You do? Meredith Sorrel asked. Isaac nodded. Everyone waited with anticipation. Don't expect him to just say where it is, Jeremy cautioned everyone. We're not going to get out of here that easy. I don't understand, Peter said. You come into this house, having met everyone for the first time this evening, not being able to see a thing, if Mrs. Rosenbaum is to be believed, and you say you know where the Jade Dragon is? That's right, Isaac said. Well, as appreciative as I am for your belief in my innocence, I'm afraid I cannot return the favor. I don't for a second believe you know where it is. There's no way you could know. Isaac answered by reaching under his leg and pulling out the Jade Dragon, holding it up for all to see. Some of the guests actually applauded, as if it was a performance. Jeremy rolled his eyes, knowing the reaction would only serve to further inflate Isaac's overblown ego. How in God's name did you find that? Where? When? David asked, utterly surprised. It was rather simple, Isaac said. Jeremy knew from Isaac's point of view that was true, and once he explained himself, everyone else would wonder how they had missed his obvious deductions. But at the moment, Jeremy was as lost as the rest of the dinner guests. I knew three things coming here tonight. One, that something of great value was missing. Two, that every effort had been made to find it before Lydia engaged my help. And three, since it hadn't been found, it must be somewhere no one had looked. Of course it was somewhere no one had looked, Jeremy said. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. Precisely. I don't understand, Meredith said, confused. We've only been talking about it for the last few minutes. I can't for the life of me figure out when you could have deduced where it was, let alone find it and be holding it in your hand. You gave me the answer, Mrs. Sorrel, Isaac replied. I did? she asked. During dinner I heard Lydia ask you about the cushions. You were very proud of them, and even mentioned how you personally carefully cleaned them yourself. I assume to make sure they aren't damaged. Yes, that's right. And I further assume your maid Alice, and now Irene, were instructed to leave them out of any cleaning routine they did. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they weren't allowed to touch them under any circumstances. I sincerely apologize for my actions earlier when I did so. I had to confirm my theory. What theory is that? David asked. That the criminals were someone living in this house. Criminals? Whatever do you mean? Meredith asked. You said it wasn't Peter, and I know it wasn't myself or David. Jeremy was the first one to catch up to Isaac. The children, he said frustrated he hadn't seen it earlier. They were also a topic of conversation at dinner, Isaac explained. You expressed how delighted you are by their presence, Mrs. Sorrel. But the children know not to play in the drawing room, she insisted. Exactly, Isaac said. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, telling me not to do something was a surefire way to get me to do it. I suspect they were playing in here at some point between David and Peter's argument and when the dragon was discovered to be missing. It is one of the few items that would catch a child's attention in this room. You still haven't told us where you found it, Peter said. Isaac smiled. I found it exactly where I find most of the things I lose in my own home. He spread his arms out. In between the sofa cushions. You must be joking, Jeremy said. Tell me you're joking. Isaac turned toward his assistant. When you described the room to me when we entered, I realized that the only place no one would have thought to look was the one place that everyone would not even have considered. I presume that the children had been playing in here. The dragon had either been tossed or fell into the sofa, which they knew was even more off-limits than the drawing room, and both of them were too afraid to admit what they had done, especially considering the strife the statue's disappearance had caused among the family. So, when I had the opportunity, I went directly to the sofa, sat down, and slipped my hand between the cushions, found the statue tucked between them, and slipped it under my leg. 
Anne made your overly dramatic reveal to impress all of us, Jeremy added. I didn't think it was overly dramatic, Isaac said. He rose to his feet and walked over to the desk where David Sorrell was sitting and placed the statue precisely on the back right corner. You must be able to see a little bit, one of the guests accused. I can assure you, it is medically impossible for Mr. Black to see anything with severed optic nerves, Jeremy confirmed. Thank you, David said. Peter cleared his throat. <clears throat> David turned to his brother. I'm sorry I accused you, Peter. It was wrong with me, he said humbly for all to hear. Apology accepted, Peter replied. This has been a most remarkable evening, Mr. Black, David said to Isaac. I can see why Lydia speaks so highly of you. You made it sound so obvious, but I quite think no one would have ever discovered where the children had left it until after Meredith and myself had passed, and maybe not even then. Not only that, I would have resented my brother for the rest of our lives. I am truly grateful. There must be something I can do to repay you. Isaac turned to Lydia. Just keep writing checks to the Amaranth Foundation. You can count on it, David assured him. As for me, Jeremy mentioned that you have a cocktail card in this room, and I heard you talking during dinner about a 50-year-old single malt scotch whiskey you had recently acquired. I'm not sure I'll ever have another opportunity to try something like that. David smiled proudly. He rose from his leather chair and crossed to the cocktail cart, where he picked up the ornate bottle of the Belvany Scotch, pulled out the cork, and poured a couple ounces into a crystal glass. Ice? he asked. Is that a trick question? Isaac asked back. I'll take it neat. Good answer, David said, deeming the detective worthy of drinking it. Isaac held out his hand and David placed the glass in it. He lifted it to his lips, then paused to allow the aroma to drift into his nose. Then he took a sip, savoring the experience, slowly drinking and enjoying every drop. They stayed a while longer while Isaac received compliments and praise from the guests, and a particularly strong thank you from Peter, who seemed to carry himself with a renewed sense of pride. As they were walking out toward the waiting Uber, Jeremy said to his friend, You know, that was a $50,000 bottle of scotch. $57,350.97, Isaac corrected. You could have asked for a check. We do have bills to pay. Isaac nodded. George Bernard Shaw once said, Whiskey is liquid sunshine. And that's the closest I've come to seeing sunshine since I... There was no need for Isaac to finish his sentence. Jeremy knew exactly why he had accepted a meager shot of fine whiskey over any amount of money. There were moments, even since he had reinvented himself as a private detective and put the worst of his depression behind him, when he became acutely aware that there were things he would never see again. Likely the entrance of the excited children was one that especially hit home. Just don't start singing John Denver tunes, Jeremy warned. Hearing you try to belt out sunshine on my shoulders would spoil the moment. Isaac laughed. <laughs> Deal, he said as they got into the back of the town car and rode away. Thank you for listening to the Jade Dragon on the Written by Rich Osick podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this story, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, give me a like or five stars, and share my weekly audio tales with a friend. You can find out more about me at richhosick.com, follow me on Twitter at richhosick, on Facebook at written by richhosick, and don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to get notified of my new releases. And if you're looking for other original story podcasts, check out As Read By Me at, not surprisingly, asreadbyme.com. They have an eclectic mix of fiction, poetry, and essays that are sure to keep you entertained, all read by the authors. Thanks again, 
and all the very best.